the word awe, if you look at the, the dictionary definition of it, it actually means reverence mixed with fear. And most of the time when people say something's awesome, they don't actually mean that it's awesome. Um, it's, it's a very appropriate um, thing for a church to have is a sense of awe, isn't it? And that's, that's what I'm going to be preaching on today. God particularly likes people who have a sense of awe. And he, he, he does some really funky stuff. And he, in, in terms of his presence, he, he has this way of just kind of showing up in really tangible ways for people who live in a constant awe of him, a constant sense of reverence of him. And you can understand that because if someone treated you like rubbish and they only listened to you... I mean, imagine if you had a friend where the only time they ever wanted to talk to you was between 9.30 and 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. You're not going to tell them that much stuff about yourself, are you? It's, it's not going to be a very good relationship. But if someone lives in a constant sense of respect and communication and values the other person and values you, you're going to be more inclined to actually talk with them and, and, and be honest and be open with them. Do, do you get what I'm saying? And it's exactly, I think it's exactly the same with God. If you, if you honour and respect and revere Him, He's, he's far more open. I think in tangible ways, but also he's just far more open with you through his, his Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to pray and ask God that there'd be a sense of awe amongst us today. Is that all right? Okay. God, you're deserving of awe. You are deserving of honour and respect. And most probably some of us need to stand down. We need to stand down and we need to... We need to stop preferring ourselves over you. We need to stop thinking that we're more important than you. We need to stop disrespecting you. We need to start respecting you some more. And God, I'm, so, I'm excited about what you do when people respect you and honour you and have a, a sense of awe of you. And so God, I pray that that would be the case today. I pray that you'd help me to contribute toward that but Holy Spirit that you would do something unusual amongst us today Amen Warnings about the possible consequences of actions are entirely appropriate aren't they You see an appropriate fear of outcomes of a certain course of action is a a simple clear way to maintain someone's focus on important things a classic example is uh, a lot of the road accident um, ads that they have on TV. What do the road accidents say? They say, if you don't be careful, you could end up like this. And it's not that you're meant to live in a constant fear of ending up like that, but there's a sense in which the consequences that could happen have a way of focusing you on the most important things. Uh, mums are classics at this, all right? Don't flick a rubber band at someone because... Yeah, you'll take an eye out, all right? Now, do, do mums actually want their kids to go around cowering in fear in the corner that they're going to take an eye out because they flick a rubber bent? No, they don't. But there's a way that a consequence, talking about a consequence, helps sharpen someone's focus on what's really important. My boys, uh, we just finished putting up some cricket nets in the backyard and one of my boys keeps asking for a box protector, all right? Because he doesn't have one yet. Now, that, you might, that's a bit gross. Did he just bring that up at church? Yes, he did. All right. But it's, why is that? Well, I might get hit. All right. Now, his, 
His thought that he might get hit doesn't stop him from going and playing in the nets. It just helps him to focus on what's important. That's what it helps him to do. <laughs> Did I just say that? <laughs> and what about this one? We say, don't people say all the time, don't do that, you might hurt someone. You know, The hot plate's just been turned off, don't touch that, that's hot. If you touch that, you're going to get burnt. Now, is the idea to actually make someone fearful about the fact and care in the corner about, I'm going to burn my hand and be focused on that? No, it's not. It's to sharpen their focus on what's important. You need to be careful right now. And in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews gives a warning to sharpen people's focus. And he would want to sharpen your focus and he would want to sharpen my focus. I'm going to read uh, from Hebrews 10 in a minute. But before I do... I just want to raise the question mark of how respectful are you toward God's word? There's a story in the Old Testament after Jerusalem had been torn down that Nehemiah gets to go back and he rebuilds a temple and Ezra, the priest, I think Ezra was a priest in there and and they decided one day they were going to read the Bible, as much Bible as they had. So they got up and they started reading early in the morning. This is the, uh, the scripture. I'm just going to read a section just in the middle of it, the italicized bit. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. Then it goes on to say that Ezra read from the scriptures from early in the morning until lunchtime. Now, I said a while ago, uh, to uh, differ Nathan. You know, sometimes I just feel like I want to come into the project and just not even preach, just read the whole of the book of Hebrews. You know, and the instant response is, well, people aren't going to like that. They're going to go home. But they didn't hear because they had an appropriate awe for God's word. Listen to this. This is out of Isaiah 66, verse 2. This is what God says. He says, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Have you ever trembled at God's word? Because God's saying in Isaiah 66, he's saying, that's the person I'm going to do really special stuff through, the person who actually trembles when they hear my word. So I just wonder, I mean, I'm I'm going to read Hebrews 10 in a minute, but I wanted to set it up because maybe some of you might be uh, on Facebook I don't know, maybe a message comes through halfway through reading Hebrews 10. Do you go to the message? Do you you go to Facebook? Do you get interrupted? Or is there an appropriate awe for God's word that you just go, no, this is a very important thing. This is a solemn thing. This is a very rich thing and a very valuable thing. I'm not going to interrupt it. I'm going to give my full focus and my full attention to what God says. So what I thought today is that we could stand up for the reading of God's Word. Is everyone happy with that? Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to start at verse 19 of Hebrews 10. You can read along on the screen or on your own device or Bible or whatever. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast 
the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. May be seated. I want to draw three things out of this uh, passage today. This is the one that we'll be working through today. The first one's this. Fear of God is critical to drawing and staying near. Those who don't stay near will be recipients of God's fury. And it's better to be carried in God's hands than to fall into them. Here's the first one. Fear of God is critical to drawing and staying near. As I mentioned earlier, you can't know anyone unless you fear, reverence or respect them. It's one of the things with interpersonal relationships. You've probably got people in your lives that diss you and just treat you badly and you just think, well, you're not going to know me. I'm not going to let you in unless you actually respect me. And the truth is too that God will not let you in unless you respect him and you fear him and you revere him. Psalm 25 verse 14 says this, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. The expositor's biblical commentary adds this or explains the last section of this verse. They say this, that he will make known to them his covenant, those who do his will and those who are his confidants. See, you've got secrets. We've all got secrets. You don't tell your secrets to everyone, do you? Because then it's not a secret. And a secret is usually something that could be, that's very personal and it's, it could be very hurtful and very damaging. God's not going to start telling you lots of his precious secrets if you don't have any kind of awe or respect of him. You see, there, it's, an, it's an integral part of friendship. There's respect and reverence for one another. That's when the secrets start to flow. works the same with God. You don't, and how many secrets has he got to tell you? Well, you're just not going to live long enough to find out. And eternity's not going to be far enough to find out. So you want to actually develop this attitude of awe and respect so that he can share some of his secrets. You see, you and I, we're not friends with everyone. We're not close friends with everyone in the church, are we? There's, there's those special friends, those close relationships where we know we can tell those secrets. Now, I'm just going to flesh out this, uh, this thing about fear of God because it's a tension, right? There's some people out there, and, and I'll talk about the theology in a minute, that say it's, it's not appropriate post-Jesus to have any kind of fear of God, right? And I completely disagree with them, all right? And I think the Bible completely disagrees with them. And I'll explain that in a minute. But let me just set up the tension for you. Here it is here. 
Oh, it's just hung itself. I'll let you sort that out. The first one I'm going to start with is uh, Exodus 20, verse 18 to 21. So if you've got your Bible there, it would be helpful for you to have a bit of a look at that. Um, anyway, it'll be up on the screen in a minute. This is uh, Moses um, and the people. Uh, God's brought along Moses. The people have come out of the promised land. They've, they've made it to Mount Sinai. And um, all the people are there with Moses at the bottom of, of uh, Mount Sinai. And this is in Exodus 20, verse 18 to 21. Listen to this. It says, Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking... That's good. Just leave that up. It's up on the screen there. And the mountain smoking... The people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us because we're going to die. That's how awesome it was. Now notice this. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. Do you notice that? Don't fear, but fear. That's what he's saying. He's saying don't fear, but fear. The people stood far off. Notice the two responses. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You see that? Moses' instinct in the face of God's awesomeness and how powerful he was, was to move toward him. This is what I think the, uh, the writer of Hebrews wants you to get, is that fear is meant to help you to draw near. Now that's counter to everything probably that you feel on the inside. When there's something that's big and massive and forceful and looks dangerous, you want to stay as far away from that as possible. But the writer of Hebrews wants you to move toward God. Have an appropriate fear and move toward God. The second scripture there is um, from Luke 12, verse 4 to 7. And I had to throw this in because Jesus teaches that you need to fear God. So note this one. I tell you, my friends, this is Luke 12, verse 4 to 7. Can you, are you able to advance that? Maybe not. Luke 12, 4 to 7, Jesus says this, and you've got to note, he's talking to his disciples, right? So you can't say, oh, this is what Jesus is saying to people that aren't Christians. He's talking to his own team. It says lots of people gathered around and he addresses his disciples. Here's what he says. I tell you, my friends, his disciples, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you to fear him. Note what he says next. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You get it? So we're living in this tension. Most of Christianity is living in a tension. All right? He's saying, fear not, for you are more value than many sparrows. Now, here's the verse that people quote to say that fearing God is not part of the new covenant. Right? And I just want to explain it. Whoever confesses, this is 1 John 4, 15 to 18, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love, sorry, the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. And here's the critical bit. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, you just got to note, when it says there's no fear in love, note the very next thing that John actually says in, in 1 John there is he says fear has to do with punishment. Okay? Now, if you're running around all the time fearing that God's going to get you and you're doing things to avoid it, who do you love the most? You love yourself, right? Because it's all about avoiding punishment. That's what it is. So I think John here, I mean, let's be honest, it's impossible to have a close relationship with someone that you're scared of, right? True? If you're scared of them, you just can't have it, all right? But it's actually impossible to have a relationship with someone with whom you don't respect and revere and fear. And, and the writer of Hebrews would want you to think that he doesn't want you to be terrified of God. He wants you to be terrified of not being near to God. Do you notice that? If you, if you remember back to the scripture that we read in Hebrews 10, he's going, if you turn away and you stay away, well, you just better be terrified of that. But he wants you to move close to him. Now, I'll just, I'm, I'm just going to keep going with this riff on, uh, on New Testament fear. Okay? New Testament fear. Because this is the thing, that's the argument. The argument is new covenant, new deal, Jesus has come and died, so the way's been made for us to have a close relationship. There's no need to fear God anymore. What's really interesting about that is it just there's a lot of fear of God in the New Testament. Hebrews 5 verse 7 is one of them. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his what? His reverence, right? So Jesus revered his father and he respected his father you could say he feared his father he wasn't scared of his father but he respected him the fear was there now second corinthians 5 verse 11 check this one out therefore knowing the fear of the lord we persuade others acts 9 so the church throughout all judea and galilee and samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the lord and in the comfort of the holy spirit it multiplied and then you've got this classic story in uh, Acts 5 um, where uh, there, was a, there was a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and it looks like what they actually saw in the back end of Acts chapter 4 is they saw some people in the church, went off and sold the property, they brought the cash, they gave all the cash to the church, probably there's all these people going ooh and ah like there's fireworks happening, all right, just thought it was the most amazing things. Ananias and Sapphira thought that would be cool to get that kind of kudos. So they went and sold the property also and they brought the money and gave it to the disciples and they said that was all the money that they got for the property. But it wasn't, right, because they kept a little bit for themselves. They just wanted the kudos of saying they gave everything that they had, right? Here's what happened to them. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. That was Peter challenging him. He said, why did you just lie to the Holy Spirit? The guy dies straight away. Notice what happens. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And then the wife comes in. Immediately she fell down at his feet and she breathed her last. So she came in and Peter goes, did you give all the money? So she goes, yeah, we gave all the money. She died. And great fear, sorry, and she breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, did all of the people in the church run off 
and just want to enter into some kind of self-protective mode and not relate to God anymore at that point? I don't think so. All of a sudden, they saw a movement, a really dramatic movement of God, and they just said, we just, we don't, you don't trifle with him. You don't muck around with him. You honour him and you respect him. And I hope you can see how, like, if you see 1 John 4 as saying there's never any fear, respect, do you see how that starts to become a bit of a problem? It's just a bit of an extreme. You know, I, I think God's saying something really clearly through 1 John, but I don't think he's saying that fear of God gets knocked out. Because you know what? Fear of God is the mechanism that God uses to keep people on track. There's a couple of guys in the Old, Test- Old Testament, Nadab and Abihu, who were uh, priests and they just decided they had access to God uh, like most people didn't back then and they went in and they offered a sacrifice God wasn't happy with. They were slack, uh, they, were pro- they were laid back, they just thought they'd just do it the way they wanted to do it, they didn't show the appropriate respect and honour of God. They died too. You've got to be, you don't trifle with God. And even if you go to the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, it says, Our Father who art in heaven, what's the next bit? Hallowed be your name. Holy, set apart, righteous. I mean, I look at the Greek word underneath the word hallowed, and you know what it means? It, it's treating something as though it were not common. Treating something as though it were not common. Because at the end, of the end of the day, who you fear is the person that you worship or the thing that you worship. A, a good word, and it's a bit of a weird word, so uh, we probably won't start using, but using it, but a good word is, is the word venerate. You see, to venerate is to, to feel or to show deep respect for someone or for something that is great and holy. You see, God would want you to venerate him. God would want you to be scared of being away from him. God would want you to respect and honour him and fear him. Now Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1 gives a bit of a test. Or the writer of Hebrews gives you a test as to whether you fear God. So you can respond to this however you want. You can get up and dance if you want. Hebrews 1 verse 9. It says this of Jesus, you have loved righteousness. Anyone here love righteousness? Yeah. So here's your test, right? Do you fear God? Do you love righteousness? What about this one? And hated wickedness. Do you hate wickedness? Do you hate sin? Do you hate disobeying God? Do you tolerate sin? I tell you what, if you tolerate sin, if you tolerate disobedience, you don't fear God. You just don't. Because you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it if you feared God. Let me give you some questions to see if, how you're going with fearing God. Is your walk with God on cruise control? If it is, you don't fear Him enough. Do you hate sin? When the Bible's read, do you have a sense that you need to listen? Do you do things that are not customary to your culture because you fear God? Do you let yourself get distracted when you're spending time with God? Do you answer the text, the email, the Facebook message halfway through spending time with God? 
See, if you fear him, you're just going, no, that, that's right then. And there, that, that's absolutely, he's most important and I'm not getting interrupted. Does God get your prime time or the leftovers? Does God get the first fruits of your wealth or the leftovers? Do you prefer TV to spending time with God? Are there currently sin issues in your life that God has convicted you about but you have not dealt with them? If you're here today and you're not a Christian but you've heard the truth about Jesus and his death for you being preached before, do you keep putting off responding to God? Scriptures say now is the day of salvation. Now. Not tomorrow. Not next year. Now. Now some of you just go, oh man, so we've just got to go and do all those things. No, you don't. If you're thinking that, stop thinking that because that's not what I'm talking about. If the fear's right, you, you get those things right. Do you get what I'm saying? You don't go and do those things and then you're going to have the fear right. That's kind of doing it backwards. You've got to get the fear right and then you get all of those things right. I want to take a little sidetrack for a moment into an Old Testament character, Abraham. Because fear and respect and honour and reverence is central to relationship with God. Genesis 22 verse 1 to 3, Abraham's considered the father of the faith. He uh, got very, very old, didn't have a son, didn't have any descendants. Uh, His wife thought it would be a cool idea to get things happening with Hagar, but that kind of didn't work too well. And now we've got the Muslims, which are a bit of a problem. Okay, It's interesting, the Muslims think that um, Ishmael was the real son and that Isaac was the you know, the son that wasn't the true one with Sarah. Anyway, uh, the Bible's clear about the fact that uh, it was uh, when Abraham and uh, Sarah came together that, that Isaac was actually born in God's good time. Now, the interesting thing is he's got one descendant. They're uh, late in their first century of life. So in their 90s, they've got this son. They may even be over 100 by the time uh, Isaac's old enough. And this is what God says to Abraham. He says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. Now, that's brutal, right? God says, take your son up to Moriah and kill him and offer him to me. Now, some of you, that's unholy, right? To, to kill your own son. But the interesting thing is, if you look in the Old Testament system, the firstborn always belonged to God. So if you wanted to keep your firstborn donkey or horse, you always had to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice to redeem your firstborn. It looks like in this case, God's gone, I just want you to give him back to me. Now, we know the ending to the story, right? And the reason why I've just pulled the text off is because you don't, he didn't know the ending to the story. Now, we kind of read it and we go, oh, that's not that bad. Oh, what about Abraham? You just, you, you what? You want me to do what? Where? When do you want me to do what? That's what you expect. But notice what you see from Abraham. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. The dudes put the alarm on. I mean, there was no electricity, but it's almost like the alarm's on. And I'm up ready the next morning to do what God wants me to do. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? 
You know, for us, we just, I mean, seriously, wouldn't we? You just go, no, I just, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, right? We're just, I'm going to get some confirmation on this one, okay? I'm going to pray about it, all right? We'll post a prayer request on the city. God's told me to kill my son. You know, what do you guys think, you know? Can you give me some feedback? Is there any prophets or people with a word of knowledge or whatever out there can tell me? This thing, I mean, obviously it was very clear to, to Abraham, right? But he gets up early the next morning to go and, and do it, right? Now listen. Just let me ask you at this point, do you think Abraham feared God? Absolutely. All right? No hesitation. Now, did Abraham have all the answers for what he was about to do? No, he didn't, right? But the thing, the prime mover in his case is that he feared God and he respected God and he honoured God and he was in awe of God. And so when God said to do something, you just better go and do it. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now... He puts Isaac on top of the, uh, the altar. He's about to kill Isaac. God tells him to stop through an angel of the Lord. God says, stop doing that. There's a ram over in the bushes. You can sacrifice that instead. And here's what uh, the angel of the Lord says. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear me, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from, from me. And one of the most... Um, abundant uh, pronouncements of blessing upon Abraham follows this. You see that? It's just like, now I know that you fear me. Man, I'm just going to bless you. All right? And it's almost like the, the vault door to God's secrets and his treasures just gets opened a little bit. And Abraham probably, it's like, you know, all those movies where they say, if you do such and such a thing, I will give you your weight in gold. You know, it's almost like one of those things. If Abraham can get through and just fear God, God's just going to pour out massive blessings upon him. So here's the thing. I watched a really interesting message from John Bevere. John Bevere's got a really good book called The Fear of the Lord, which would be really worth you having a read of if you wanted to. I've got a spare copy if you want to read it. But he makes these comments about fearing God. If you fear God, you obey him instantly. You obey him even when it doesn't make sense. You obey him even when it hurts. You obey him even if you don't see a benefit and you obey him to completion. Did Abraham do all of those? Absolutely. Now, there was no question about it. He's just, I've just got to do it. Now, did it make any sense to Abraham? Probably absolutely not. Because he's only got one son. If he takes him out, he's got no descendants and God said he's going to bless him through his descendants. So he's just going, I don't even know how that's going to work. But he knows what he's doing and I'm going to respect him and honour him and I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to stand down from my opinion and my wisdom and I'm going to defer to his opinion and his, and his wisdom. And the truth is probably with some of us, you need to stand down from, from your wisdom. You need to stand down and you need to just accept his wisdom when it doesn't make sense and just do it straight away. Some people say this, they say, God has been on my case for the last three months about this. Why are you boasting about your lack of fear of the Lord? Now, I'd ask you that today. Has there been some stuff in your life that God's been convicting you about for a long period of time? You don't fear him. And you need to turn and you need to say sorry to him for that and repent and ask him to forgive you for not respecting him. Because when he tells you to do something, you just need to go and do it. Is everyone okay? Is that true? You just better go and do it. And some of you need to say sorry because 
you haven't really, I mean, if you're anything like me, sometimes you get in these places in your life and you go through these seasons where there's no sound of battle in your life because you've made peace with some of the crap that's in your life. Does it make sense? Like, that's one of the things I like to listen to when I talk to people is I just think, can I hear the sounds of battle inside this particular person? I don't even care whether you're winning the battle. I just want to hear the sound of swords hitting each other in a sense, you know, metaphorically speaking. I want to hear that because that tells me there's some action going on on the inside. Is there the sounds of battle in your life at the moment? If there's the sounds of battle, you probably have got some fear of the Lord because you know he's serious about what he wants you to do. quoted John Piper a little bit but I've got to read a section from some of his writings because he's got this sweet analogy about what fear of the Lord is. He says this, the clearest illustration I've ever seen of this kind of fear was the time one of my sons looked a German shepherd in the eye. We were visiting a family from our church. My son Carsten was about seven years old. They had a huge dog that stood eye to eye with a seven-year-old. He was friendly and Carsten had no problem making friends. But when we sent Carsten back to the car to get something we had forgotten, he started to run and the dog galloped up behind him with a loud growl. Of course, this frightened Carsten. But the owner said, Carsten, why don't you just walk? The dog doesn't like it when people run away from him. You see that? If Carsten hugged the dog, he was friendly and would even lick his face. But if he ran from the dog, the dog would growl and fill Carsten with fear. Now that is a picture of what it means to fear the Lord. God means for his power and his holiness to kindle fear in us, not to drive us from him, but to drive us to him. Fear helps us to draw near. Point number two. Those who don't stay near will be recipients of God's fury. Hebrews 10, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed. Sorry, he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. We haven't, I don't think we've ever really preached a message on hell. At the project in two and a half years. And I I said to someone yesterday, I said, it's it's a bit fire and brimstone tomorrow morning. And you know why it's fire and brimstone? Because the next bit we're preaching through Hebrews is fire and brimstone, isn't it? If you neglect, I'm telling you, if you're not a Christian here today and you neglect and you ignore and you set aside the death of Jesus on the cross for you, God's fury will be poured out upon you. You'll become his enemy. And if you're someone who's heard the gospel... Because specifically, the really interesting thing is if you look at the New Testament, most of the warnings about hell are actually given to Christians. And if you look at this warning here, it looks like it's someone who is actually in the hood, in the church hood, right? 
and they set it aside. And maybe you made some kind of commitment to God when you were young. And, and then you've not carried through on it. God's saying, if you set aside him, you set aside his sacrifice for you, he's coming for you. And it's not going to be pretty. It will not be pretty for you. And this, this is a solemn thing. This is a very solemn thing. And you ought to be thinking also at this point in time about your neighbours. About the people that you love that don't know Christ. Do you really want God's fury and his anger to be poured out upon them? Now, it doesn't mean that when you get home, you've got to convert your neighbours in, you know, 30 seconds. All right? But there is a sense of urgency about it, isn't there? Because no one knows when they're going to go. You see, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, because you notice up there it says, look, if someone set aside the Old Testament law, they'd be killed for it, right? And you can have a look at it later. It'll be up on uh, Project's website. But if you go to Deuteronomy 17, 2 to 7, it actually talks about what happens to someone who leaves God. An Israelite that decides they don't want to follow God anymore. And you know what happens? They were meant to be stoned. They were meant to be stoned. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, look at this. If this happened back then, if the person was put to death because they didn't follow God back then, how much worse is it going to be now that the ultimate sacrifice has actually been given to everyone? You see, the most terrifying truth of Scripture is that God is good, is it not? Because if he's good, he's got to deal with sin and he's got to deal with junk. I think the worst thing that any particular individual could do is to ignore and to shove aside the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That is probably the most disrespectful, hurtful, evil thing that someone could do. That God would come in a person and lay his life down for us and we would set it aside. And it's no surprise to me that the writer of Hebrews says, look, in the Old Testament, if you turn from God, you got stoned. What do you reckon is going to happen if someone comes along and they decide, I don't need Jesus, thanks, I'll be right. And he's kind of saying, if this sacrifice is so good and it's so intense and it's so amazing and it's just infinite in its reach, don't set that aside because worse is coming for you than being stoned. Does that make sense? There's not the marijuana kind of stone, right? There's the rocks at the head stoned, Okay. <laughs> Some people go, stone, oh, that would be really good. (laughs) Just think about it. If God provides the ultimate sacrifice and he comes down and he dies for everyone out of his love for them, he wouldn't be good if he did nothing about everyone. He said it was just crap and they didn't want any of it, didn't want a bar of it. Does that make sense? It's a fearful thing that God's good. Because it means every single thing that happens in this world, every injustice that every human being cries out about is going to get squared up and all the ones that they don't cry out about are going to get squared up as well. So what does a good God do with bad people? (laughs) That's the question. If God is truly just, what does he do with us? 
You see, you neglect the death of Jesus on the cross. You set that aside. There's no other option for you. I'm telling you, there's no other hope for you. That's it. That is your only hope. Christian and people who aren't following Jesus yet, your only hope is the death of Jesus on the cross. And if you set that aside, there is no other hope. You're talking about a completely hopeless, a completely hopeless eternity. And that's what you get. Because your only hope is in Jesus. Set aside him and you become God's enemy. And only a fool will fight against someone that they can't beat. True? Only a fool will try and assault someone that they can never punch up or assault. says this in uh, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 5 to 9. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Some of you probably feel a little bit awkward at this point in time, right? Because all of a sudden we're start to, starting to sound like fundamentalists, right? True? It's, it's a bit awkward. You know, because you've had all those people who have said, you know, God's coming back and his wrath's coming back, you know, Monday morning at 7.30 in the morning and then it didn't happen. But here's the truth, folks. He is coming back one day. He's coming back. And when he comes back, the time of amnesty will be over. It will be over. You know, it wasn't that long ago, in my lifetime anyway, where John Howard had the gun buyback amnesty. Do you remember that? And you know what it was? You could take your guns in. If you had illegal firearms, you could take your guns in and not get busted for them. That's what an amnesty is. Take your stuff in that's illegal and don't get busted for it. This is the time of amnesty, right? This is the time of amnesty. Jesus came the first time, he was the perfect sacrifice and when he comes the second time, you will know that the time of amnesty is over. You don't get another chance after that. Back in the 1700s, there was uh, an American theologian called Jonathan Edwards. And if you want to make your hair stand on end, you can uh, read um, his sermon that he wrote called uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I'm going to give you an excerpt here it's, uh, I mean, it's just classic Puritan kind of fare, okay? But what's really interesting about it is it's, it looks like this was actually written in the time, uh, a, a revival time of the Great Awakening. And so what Jonathan Edwards was trying to do is he was trying to give people a sense of eternity and a sense of the reality of hell and a sense of the precariousness of their situation and uh, help people to see things clearly in that respect. Now, I'm going to read this and some of it you're just going to go, oh, I don't know whether I'd say it like that. Now, it may be that he's not right. It also may be that we've moved so far from a culture of the fear of God that it seems some, what seems wrong is not actually wrong. You get what I'm saying? Here's what he says. Oh, no. You go down to my slide. 
that God holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over a fire, and he's dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep, and there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there's nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. You're not smiling. At the conclusion of his sermon, he writes this. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. And you know how you fly and you know where you fly? You fly to Jesus. That's what you do. That's the only place. Like he is the only fire insurance. You fly to him. And the weird thing is, if you get into Revelations, you realise the one who's going to be handing out the judgment is Jesus. So you either get to go to him for refuge or you'll end up going to him for judgment. Point three. It's better to be carried in God's hands than to fall into them. Hebrews 10.31 says this, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, Jesus also said this in John chapter 10. Listen to the tenderness of this. These are your two options, folks. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You can fall into his hands and it's fearful. You can be carried in his hands and it's precious, true? And you get to do that because of Jesus. We're going to finish with story time. How's that sound? I'm going to read you a uh, section out of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and, uh, and then we'll finish. This is a section the uh, kids have just gone into Narnia and uh, they've just been found by Mr Beaver uh, and Mr Beaver's taken uh, the kids back to uh, his house with Mrs Beaver and there's this wonderful conversation which I think illustrates fear of God and is a good way for us to close. The, uh, Mr Beaver says... It's no good, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver. No good you're trying, of all people. But now that Aslan is on the move... Oh, yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once. For once again, that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news, had come over them. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Now, in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, Aslan's the lion who represents Jesus. Who's Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr Beaver. Why don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. 
but not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He's in Narnia at the moment. He'll settle the white queen, all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. And the white queen's representative of the devil. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. Lord, love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone. If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect of her. No, no, he'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him, asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve? That's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is... Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. Why don't you stand with me and I'll pray and uh, we'll finish up. So God, I just pray... that you today would cause people to run toward you. God, that our fear of you wouldn't repel us, but it would draw us near to you. And God, I pray for anyone here who, uh, I don't know, maybe they're Christians who are just lethargic that you'd sharpen them maybe God there's some people here who don't know you and I pray today that they would run to you that they would run to you God let our please don't let our laid back Aussie thing mean spiritual laziness to you and disrespect of you and God we just um, we all need to run to you God whether we're faithful to you or not we all need to run to you because none of us treat you with the awe and the reverence and the respect that you deserve and God I thank you so much that because of your 
your death on the cross, Jesus, that you invite us to run toward you. And I just pray that you would uh, cleanse us. And God, that we'd be known at the project as God-fearers and that our week would look like that, that we really highly respect you and we venerate you. God, restore to us right attitudes. And God, I would just invite you. I pray that you'd help us to get that right and then I just look forward to what you're going to do because it just cuts things loose. It cuts you loose in a sense. You're not bound and limited by disrespect. And we just really want to see, I want to see your presence in this church. I want to see your presence in these people. Lord. I want to see your presence during the week where they move. I want to hear stories about things that you're just doing all the time because we respect you and we just listen to you and we obey you and we stand down from our opinions and we just do what you say. And then you just do some wild stuff. And God, I would pray that we would have meetings at this church on a Sunday morning where there's a tangible sense of your presence amongst us. Because it's right for you to do that. It's safe, in a sense, for you to do that. Because you don't have people who are going to abuse you and take you for granted and be lazy about things. But we stand in awe of you. And as we stand in awe of you, God, I pray that it wouldn't ever mean a lack of distance, a lack of intimacy, a lack of relationship, but it would actually lead to ever-increasing, ever-deepening relationship with you. And God, that maybe in six months' time, some of us might say, I didn't even know all this stuff relationally. I didn't know God that well, but now I know him. And it comes out of a respect and an honouring of you. And God, if there's things that the leadership do at the project here and things that we've done that show a lack of respect for you, and I'm sure that there have been, we just ask your forgiveness and your cleansing. And we run to you. We run to you because of our fallenness and the fact that we can't run a church, in a sense, well enough for what you deserve. But yet, that's the tension, Lord, because at the same time, You just call us to come to you and the sacrifice is there and we're your sons and your daughters and you want us close. You don't want us to run away and you want us to just keep going and you energise us to keep going. So God, thanks that you cover all of it. Thanks that we can come in the period of amnesty to you and give you our junk and it's going to be okay. It's always going to be okay and you're going to turn the mess into something marvellous. And you're already doing it. And we just appreciate that about you so much. Amen.